everybody. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. It's the week of May 25th. I'm your host, James Huang. And before we get into things, we'd like to first extend a warm welcome back to our hammer in chief, Kaylee Fretz. How's dad life going, Kaylee? Uh, it's great. It's great. Yeah. I, you know, change a diaper with a hammer, uh, feed her with a hammer, everything. I'm, I'm good to go. It's no big deal. Hammer, hammer's multi-purpose after all. Very multi-purpose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, also we're here with us today as usual is tech editor dave rome hi dave hey uh along with pro mechanic zach edwards from the boulder Gruppetto. hi zach hello we have an awesome show for you on hand today as always the last time we got together for a group show we chatted a bit about some of the bikes at the handmade bicycle show australia this time around we're going to talk some more about some really cool parts and accessories that were shown there we're also going to chat about the latest upgrade package from ratio technology for your older sram double tap road levers we'll take a closer look at wahoo's second generation bolt gps computer and once again we will wrap up with a round of ask a mechanic which will be very hammer heavy i'm ready all right first up let's take a look at some of the parts and accessories or well, i guess i guess we're not really taking a look we're discussing some of the parts and accessories from handmade bicycle show australia uh we mentioned during our last group show that australian custom builders have been pretty remarkably innovative and creative almost uh, almost by necessity and it seems that same mindset isn't limited just to bikes either uh so one of the things i want to start with from that show is partington wheels dave what is the deal with these because they are pretty interesting yeah, so two years ago, I was at the Handmade Show, and they were there in this kind of dingy corner of the show with like a, a fold-out trestle table and some prototype wheels. Uh, and yeah, they were, they were sort of hitting some pretty remarkable weights and claiming that they wanted to be the new lightweight of the industry. So price no object, full carbon wheel, everything made in-house. Uh, made in Geelong, which is just around the corner from Borm, actually. So there's been a bit of collaboration there. Uh, and yeah, fast forward two years, they're they're basically running full steam. They're full production. They're they're actually fully sold out into the into the the future, and they're looking to expand their manufacturing facilities. Uh, but yeah, you're looking at a 1,200 gram tubeless disc brake road wheel set that claims to be stiffer than anything and i guess still has a, a rim profile that at least in theory should be aerodynamic and what are they doing with the spokes because the way that they're running those things is kind of interesting right like around the hub and everything yeah so the the spokes that are their own uh it's it's basically a u-shaped spoke um or if you want to play on the aussie theme it's almost like a boomerang uh and and basically it, it kind of if you imagine a spoke with an almost uh, that continues along a, a 90 degree turn and then comes back. Uh, basically they have the spoke and then it wraps around the hub shell and then goes back into the rim and it's, it's bonded in place. So, uh, so it kind of isn't bonded to the hub shell, but it is bonded to the rim in two places. And then they do that multiple times around the wheel. And then effectively the hub shell is contained. Are they going to Arsis explode on me? I think not. I hope not. I mean, they, they certainly, uh, they've, they've done a huge amount of testing. They've been part of a, a university based, I guess, carbon manufacturing and, and research project. So they've had quite a few years, uh, yeah, to test these things. I think it's maybe four or five years in the making. The guys behind it kind of, uh, 
seem to be pretty smart guys. One comes from a uh, motorsport engineering side. Um, so yeah, they're, they're certainly experienced in the composite world and they, they certainly have been doing their own internal tests um, quite stringently. So about this Arsis thing, Kaylee, I feel like we need to go on this tangent just a little bit. So a lot of people probably yes, don't Mavic, know about this. This is personal yeah. for me. <laughs> so yes, Mavic Arsis wheels, for those of you who don't remember, they were the kind of like the climbing wheels that Mavic came with, came out with. God, it must've been like 10 years ago or something now. Yeah, at least, and yeah. they were, they used tubular carbon fiber spokes that Fancy were straw. designed, yeah, <laughs> were, were d- that were designed to be run in tension and compression, depending on where they were in the wheel at, as it's rotating. Um, and as it turns out, carbon doesn't particularly love being under compression, particularly when the whole spoke is only made out of unidirectional fibers running lengthwise with no wrapper on the outside. So they were... Uh, I guess a little more prone to buckling failures than uh, Mavic apparently deemed possible at the time. So later generations of the Arsis wheels came with a wrap around the spokes. So those supposedly did not explode. Um, But anyway, that wheel was pretty different. Other carbon wheels that have come out since then, all of those spokes are designed to be under tension all the time. So no, these should not explode like that. <laughs> That's good. That uh, I, I like that. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it good, was it was a feature. Least, yeah, it's a good feature. Not exploding is a good is a feature that I usually look for in my wheels. Yeah. Uh, it was ten years ago. It was more than ten years ago because it was before. So my 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 personal anecdote with Arsis wheels is some people might remember Ben Delaney, uh, uh, who's still at Velenews to this day, although he's he left for a while and is now back, but at the time was also at Velenews. And was racing a set of those at the North Boulder Park crit here in Boulder. And uh, he and I were in the Cat 2 race together. Uh, last lap. And I was on Ben's wheel. About to win, obviously. And Ben's front wheel exploded. <laughs> his fork his fork went straight into the ground. And he didn't really know what happened. And he like broke a collarbone. And more importantly, prevented me from winning a free pair of socks and whatever else I was going to win on that particular day <laughs> because I had to, I had to like slam on my brakes, go around and then whoever was way behind us won. And those people don't realize that they were about to lose to Ben and I, uh, to, to be fair, Kaylee, I know you're a strong rider and all I've also ridden with Ben and I'm pretty sure that in a criterium situation, I don't know if you could have come around him. Oh, I, I mean, the Arsis, though, had they not exploded, are literally the least aerodynamic wheels ever. <laughs> so if Kaylee had a had a more aero wheel, he would have came around. Yeah, there's something there's something about like inch wide round spokes that doesn't really lend itself. <laughs> box section they're not, rim. They're not yeah. that wide, but yes, yeah. no. They're, they're, they're this not, is this is before aero. I was anyway, in bike media. They, I was I was they, I was like I was still in college. Aspiring I was not, bike racer. I was aspiring bike racer, and Ben Delaney called me up in the bike shop that I was working at and was like, "Hey, I heard you were the guy behind me." did you see anything and i was like i saw you faceplant that's all i saw <laughs> so so did so that kind of made the introduction for you to then to join villa news did it I, I mean not too far off like it, we, it, yeah, right. it was a funny story for us to tell once i i took an internship there shortly after actually via another friend okay. brian holcomb but uh so yeah, maybe kinda, you should be thanking kinda. the arsis wheels for, yeah for, love, uh, Matic. love it make more arsis make m- maybe not don't do that We have gone so far off the rails already. (laughs) Party ten. This is what we talking about again. This is what we get when I come back on the podcast. We just yep, exactly, exactly. And and then then we get the complaints in the in the uh, in the iTunes comments. Uh, Anyway, yes, Partington, Dave. I'm wondering, have you ridden a set of these? 
No, so apparently, so they've been flat out with production. They're they're currently, I believe, they told me they're capable of creating three hundred sets a year at the moment, or maybe that's their goal to get to up up to that production. Um, I've been on the wait list for a test pair for a little while, and apparently, I am meant to be first, but we'll see. Are they out in the wild enough for people to actually ride? Yeah, people own them now. So, um, like customers now, like bike companies in australia that have been given a set to ride no no people have been buying them um they are expensive but yeah borm and bastion have been specking them on their bikes for a few months now uh and they are both i guess uh demanding more and more of them they can't get enough of them is what's uh speaking with both of them how much are they that is a very good question i believe uh if you know lightweight pricing you know partington's pricing i think it's around uh I need to double check this, but it's around the seven thousand dollar Australian mark. It's like twelve fifty US, but pretty expensive still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the cost of like a DT Swiss aluminium wheel in the US. I'll um, <laughs> um, never miss no, an opportunity to dunk on the Australian they're very, dollar. Very, very premium, and and that was something I had a conversation with the guys at Partington about, which is they they basically believe that uh, in there's a market out there that if they create a product that is clearly better than anything else, that price doesn't necessarily matter. And only 300 sets a, wheel, a year. That's also more exclusive. There's at least 300 people who do not care about how much it costs. Yeah, for sure. So, Ooh. but yeah, that, that 300 number they they are looking to greatly expand that. They, I mean, they, I was, I was talking to them and they have some pretty ambitious goals to, to get their production up. Um, and, and they are, they are moving facilities to do that. Do they only have one model at the moment? One model. Uh, it's a 44 mil rear with a 39 millimeter front depth. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like they might have other models in the works, but uh, it's just the one for now. Nice. I did just check just now. It is 7,000 Australian. That is, that's a lot of money. But so anyway, they can what, what is that actually in US? That's like 5K, 4,500, 5K in US. But like the lightweight, the new, the Fernweg Evos, those are like nine grand US dollars. So they can up that price a little bit. Yeah. Oh, oh don't tell them that. Room Shoot for the moon. Yeah, we need another I, zero at the end of this. <laughs> I can, I can see the advertising campaign now. It'd be like Partington, the value lightweight. <laughs> but anyway dave i i am curious to hear well i mean hopefully they can provide that test set sooner than later because i mean having ridden a bunch of carbon spoked wheels at this point i'm really curious what these things ride like um mm. i guess particularly if they're comparing themselves to lightweight because you know while lightweight is lightweight um they're also super stiff and not necessarily in a good way i would say i mean yeah they're super like you know like torsionally stiff and you know really stiff laterally and responsive and whatnot but they also ride quite stiff too mm. um so and, and that's sort of been my experience with a lot of other carbon spoked wheels that i've used so far yeah. and i'm definitely very curious if these are any different so yeah uh, ditto and yeah you know i've just i've just finished uh testing the new kdex 36 wheels that got released overnight and um yeah same it's a very similar experience so yeah it, it's it'll be interesting to see what they've what they managed with the partington for sure so Partington, if you are listening, I know you are only building 300 sets per year and they are all sold, they are all sold and each of those customers is paying $7,000 for them. But if you have, if you have it in your heart to spare a set for loan for a little while for the grand total of $0, <laughs> Dave, Dave Rome is waiting for you. 
we'll buy you a coffee or something. Maybe, maybe even a good coffee. Maybe, yeah, even, we'll buy, maybe even a good coffee. An expensive Melbourne coffee. We'll buy <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Partington, we will we will do a deep dive episode with the uh, uh, John Partington, the the key engineer with the company, at some point, and pick his brain on on all sorts of nerdy engineering wheel related things. Oh, we do love we do love nerdy engineering related things. Uh, moving on, still at bicycle, uh, still at Handmade Bicycle Show Australia. Uh, I'm a pretty big fan of Rear Lights, as a lot of people who have been reading my stuff know. Um, and there was a company that showed off a pretty interesting set called Project Flock, um, and they are taking a bit of a different idea on the rear visibility thing. Dave, what's their thought here? Their their whole idea is based around the biomotion of the rider so the idea that uh i guess the human brain responds better to to motion than it does to many other elements so the idea is is to illuminate the riders pedaling um which their theory is is that by doing so then uh, a motorist sees the the cyclist as human as opposed to just an annoying flashing light in front of them and how are they doing that exactly uh, it, it's basically just a very clever um, arrangement of LEDs and reflectors that that shine the light outward, but also uh, in in a, a sideways and forward um, element. So yeah, very unique light design that I guess uh, yeah sends the light in in directions that people aren't used to seeing. Because basically, what it's doing is it's lighting up the back of your legs, right? Yep. Yep. Exactly. So yeah, it's just uh, from a distance. Yeah, you see these legs moving, and you see the person as opposed to just the light. So is Project Flock meeting this to be, or are they intending for this to be a a daytime light or nighttime light? It seems to definitely, like all their marketing materials show it as a a nighttime light, Uh, but I guess the lumen output in it and uh, I guess the the features in it allow it to be used as a daytime light too. So you can really, my understanding is that you can actually use it as like a traditional rear safety light. But the main feature is that it's, uh, you know, once at night or, or low light, it, it illuminates the rider as well. Hmm. I mean, the idea behind this isn't really all that different from what a lot of other companies have talked about, too. I guess, you know, Perlazumi in particular is one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they call their setup like BioViz. And I think, yeah. uh, think Bontrager yeah. does something like this, too. And, and basically what they have talked about is concentrating the high visibility patches on cyclist clothing on moving parts, specifically like legs and feet, ankles, that yep. sort of thing. Yep. Um, and so this basically just follows that same mindset and assuming all of these things are based in sound science, then it sounds like this could be a good idea. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, the, there are research papers out there, um, around biomotion in cyclists. And I believe most of these companies are basing their, their products on those research papers. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's certainly something I've seen Bontrager reference, for example, and yeah, it's it seems it seems like a good idea. Seeing video of it, I mean, the the product's only currently in prototype form. Seeing video of the products in use, it does actually look like it would work quite well. And how much are these things? They're going to be one hundred and twenty dollars Australian for a light. So I mean, it's it's high end, but not not extremely so. And then, uh, but yeah, mainly they they're looking to launch on Kickstarter. But at this point in time, they're just kind of, I believe they're trying to build their database. So I mean, it's not seven thousand dollars. It's not so. It's a whole lot. Yeah, you know, if you're comparing it against a set of Partingtons, then yeah, you could definitely get a few Project Flocks. 
I mean, that's, that's um, not too far off like a Bontrager Flare. Aren't those like 70 US or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've definitely priced it to... It's not going to be made in Australia, but it, they've definitely... I don't think at least. Um, but they've definitely priced it to be competitive with the the top, you know, with the most popular and brightest uh, rear lights on the market. Cool. All right. When, when, when do we think that these are actually going to be out on the market? You said they're going to like kind of kick off on Kickstarter first. Yeah, it's... I don't know. That was a bit vague. Sometime this year. Hmm. <laughs> Sometime this yeah. year, that leaves a yeah, that leaves a, a lot of wiggle room there. <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah, the owner was very keen for me to mention that uh, he wants people to go to his website and give them sign up email address so he can let them know when it does launch. Huh. What's what's yeah, the okay. website? Projectflock one word dot cc. Okay, good to know. Coming back to wheels, we're going to move away from Handmade Bicycle Show Australia. Uh, Roval had a kind of an interesting sounding release recently. Um, so I have been running the Roval Terra CLX, uh, kind of like all road gravel ish wheels for, uh, probably the better part of a year now. Uh, and honestly, they're kind of one of my favorite all arounders. Uh, and I clearly as a reminder to myself, I need to write those up. Um, but they're also quite expensive. Uh, they're really light. They're really wide. They feel really good. All that stuff. Not that expensive Uh, though. Well, they're not like seven thousand dollars expensive. <laughs> yeah, they're like twenty five hundred. The new zips and everything is all like four grand. True, true. Okay, so they're they're about average for like a a, a good high end, a decent high end carbon wheel these days. Anyway, they now have the Terra CL, which is uh, eleven hundred dollars US cheaper. It's fourteen hundred US twenty uh, twenty six hundred Australian, uh, and it uses the exact same rim. The only real difference is uh, it's about one hundred and four grams heavier because it uses essentially DT Swiss 350 hubs instead of the, I think they were using 180s actually in the CLXs. Um, so they're better is what you're saying. Well, that, that's kind of what <laughs> I'm getting to here. So, <laughs> so given the issues that we've talked about with DT Swiss's ratchet EXP driving, driver mechanism, um, I mean, even assuming that is a temporary kind of like, you know, just like production run sort of issue, I really have to wonder, I mean, given how much, like just how much more or given how much less expensive these Terra CL wheels are. And given that the hub is arguably better because it uses DT Swiss's older star ratchet system, which has been proven for God knows how long, well over a decade now, like decades, I should say. And it's um, quieter. And it is, well, it's not only is it quieter, it, it can be loud if you want it to be, it can be quiet if you want it to be, you know, it's still just as easy to service. You know, the parts are a little bit more readily available. I'm kind of wondering, especially you know, we're seeing so many carbon wheels now that are now hovering around the kind of like $1,500 range now, as opposed to where all of them used to be kind of like more around like $2,500 now. I have a much harder time these days justifying moving up above that kind of like $1,500 range for carbon wheels because it really does seem like a sweet spot as far as what you get for the money. 100%. I, I, I still genuinely think that a set of carbon wheels is the quickest easiest way to kind of transform the feel of a lot of bicycles particularly if you're you know talking about a gravel bike that might also have slightly heavier tires and things like that like having a nice stiff carbon wheel makes a huge difference but to go to the really expensive ones the 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 diminishing returns are well just not worth it right it's the same though like it's the same reason why people buy durace over altegra like people want the nicest the most expensive like people aren't going to all of a sudden stop buying the 
the CLX over the CL. But we are here to tell you to do that. Stop buying the CLX, start buying the CL. I mean, it, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And I think that that's, that is a, it's a sweet spot price-wise from a lot of different companies, actually, because carbon rims have come so far. And because a lot of the time, just like in this case, the rim is exactly the same. Nobody on earth, zero people, are going to be able to ride those two wheels, CL and CLX, and tell the difference except for the noise that the rear hub makes. Not a single person anywhere. <laughs> James, James is looking feel, quite offended here. You're not going to feel whatever is like 100 grams in the middle of the hub. You're just not going to do it. Yeah, there's no 0% chance. And so what the, what's the point other than just to say that you have the expensive ones? I'm told Cadell Evans used to be able to pick those differences, but, uh, no. but yes, it, it, most, most, most uh, <laughs> yeah. blind tests. No way. Yeah. No, 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 no. I have also heard that he was particularly adept at picking up things like really slight geometry tweaks. Like I remember when I went to a, a yeah. BMC it was the last SLR anyway, years ago. Yeah. yeah that's uh, why I had it through too. BMC. Yeah. And, and he, you might've even been at that launch. I don't remember. Um, and yet, they explained how he was like much more adept than other teammates at picking up, you know, they, they did little things to fork rake and things like that. And he would almost always be able to tell sort of which direction it had gone and whether he liked it or not. But that's different than like 75 grams in a hub. There's <laughs> no 0% chance. That is I mean, hot take to the Terra from Revol is better than the Alpinist. I would say. <gasps> I, I would agree with you. It's, it's I wider. For- it lays, weighs less than 50 grams more. And can do tubeless if you care about that, but mainly because it's wider. But it does it does have a twenty eight millimeter um, minimum tire requirement. It so does. If you want, if you want narrow, smaller than twenty eight. What kind of crazy person is running at less than a twenty eight right now? I don't know. There's lots of people in Europe still doing this. Yeah, well, they're crazy people. Yeah, they're still riding rim brakes too, which are supposedly garbage. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty spectacular wheel. So yeah, the rim's identical. It's just the hub and spokes um, save the cost and add the weight. Is those are the only differences. It's it's a pretty pretty impressive wheel. Yeah. So like you know we have we have wheels at this price point and like it, we're pretty pretty flush with options at that price point now. Like you know Zip, Bontrager, Envy, you know Roval. I mean pretty much everyone has a carbon like a really good carbon wheel around this price point. And like you said, Gilly, it's really hard to justify spending more. Like the, I'm sure these parting tins are great. Having ridden lightweights. I have no doubt that those parting tins feel different and ride differently and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. But for five times the price. They're five times the price. Like, yeah. But like, uh, that, that I can almost justify more than, than, than a $5,000 or $4,000 wheel. Like, because that is, it's a, it's a totally different way of building a wheel. It's going to ride really differently. It's going to be stiffer. It's like, it's just going to feel really different. And if that's what you're going for, just a, a wheel that feels really amazing, then maybe that's worth the price for you. To me, it's all the sort of wheels in that like three to $5,000 range that are just, they're still just a rim with a metal spoke with lace to a hub. They're going to feel basically exactly the same as a carbon wheel that's $1,500. And all of those to me are just a waste of money. They really are. I would say these revolves too at this price point, whether it's the Terras or the Alpinist. I think even the Rapids, they do a CL now. But like they, at this price point, use still a DT hub like we've talked about. A lot of companies in this price point use a cheap OEM hub that is a lot harder to source parts for down the road. Where this is a DT hub that you'll forever be able to find parts for. Yeah, and whereas pretty much, you know, whereas that Star Ratchet patent has expired now and pretty much every hub company out there is is copying the design or has been now for the last couple of years, 
Uh, I mean, the DT Swiss Star Ratchet, the original design hub is still, I mean, nothing else really has that track record of reliability behind it. So I would argue that even though there are a whole bunch of copycats out there, like none of them really have the long-term reliability record that these two, that, that these do. And especially given that the 350s got revised so that they're actually now as light as the 240s used to be, uh, it's it, it's a killer hub. And again, that, that wheel set in particular, I think is a really good value, all things considered. And it's still $1,400, but yeah. My, my only complaint with them is they've used, they've literally like taken the DT Swiss 350 hub like off the shelf. It's still got like the original um, white decals on it. And that kind of feels a little, I don't know. I would have thought they'd go with like a gray sticker or a black sticker to make or it look like, like a more cohesive wheel. But, it, um, but, but you know, but it, is, the price point it is still just a sticker. <laughs> it is still just a sticker. You can remove that sticker. And there are plenty of companies out there that make custom stickers for DT Swiss hubs. So that is easily fixed. It is. All right. Moving on. I felt like a, a, a flailing grasp at objectivity there, Dave Rome. <laughs> Just trying to find something <laughs> wrong with these wheels. <laughs> well, the um, I mean, I've got a pair here to test. I can also say the stock tubeless valves are no good. Ooh, that's actually don't, useful. Don't, useful consumer don't advice. supply a tubeless valve with a flat washer that sits above the valve hole. Hmm. Top tip. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay then. If if those are your two biggest complaints right now, Dave, then I expect a glowing review of those things. Is like, yeah, like I said, having written, uh, having yeah. spent a lot of time on the on the on the CLX version, I'm expecting these to be pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. In more mainstream accessory news, uh, Wahoo Fitness just dropped their second generation Element Bolt GPS computer. Uh, it's roughly the same size as the original, uh, both in terms of the the case dimensions and the screen dimensions. Uh, even the, the, the pixel density, the resolution is supposedly the same. However, the screen is now full color. Uh, it's still a lot crisper and clearer than before. Uh, we now have full navigation functionality and there's, there's almost four times more onboard memory. So in theory, you should be able to pack on a whole lot more rides on this thing before the thing starts to get a little tired and confused. Uh, the price has gone up a fair bit, uh, from 220 us to 280, but uh, Dave and Kaylee and the three of us have been, we've been playing with test samples for the last week or so. Um, what do you like about it so far? And what do you not like about it? Because so far, a lot of it seems pretty good. I, yeah, I like a lot of, I like the screen a lot more. Uh, the nav function works a lot better. Uh, the, like the actual button click on it on the front of it and the side of it is just much much nicer it's, it's very clicky just, yeah just for it has an actual click to it right and that that was it's it's that's a pretty minor thing i mean how often do i actually click the button but it is one of those you know going out and doing some intervals or something hitting the lap button and you kind of like it's nice to know that you clicked it you know so I like that uh other than that i think like the big question for me is is really ooh, how do how do we how do we sort of fully differentiate between the Rome and this now? Like, the, is the Rome, which is obviously bigger, sort of a little bit better for navigation? What is that actually worth it? Because it is more expensive still. It's it's three, what three sixty? It's a hundred dollars more. It's three eighty. Three eighty. Of of course, I'm worth it. <laughs> oh, you were you were just Minus five points. You were just waiting for that one. Rome. I was waiting for that. Yeah, <laughs> you were waiting for yeah. that, Kaylee. You could not yeah. have teed that up more easily for him. <gasps> Uh, I, you know, I've got dad jokes all over the place now, so I really have to, God. I knew Kelly would appreciate that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
so yeah that's my question is like is what what's the point of the roam now because for me the roam before was okay you get a bigger screen so you can kind of see the map better and things like that and now that the screen on the bolt is in color and clearer and you can just see it a lot better that 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 it, the differentiator there is not as stark yeah yeah i think if you're using it for navigation then a larger screen is of benefit if you're not using it for navigation then yeah i mean there's there's probably not a lot of reason to have all that extra real estate that the roam provides so um i think i think but i think they they probably made this new computer knowing that it would cannibalize the sales of the roam well, what I'm wondering at this point is, I mean, yeah, Kaylee, I'm totally in agreement with you. And that's actually a question that I was going to ask anyway, um, because seeing as how the functionality is basically the same as the Roam, I mean, you could argue that the the Bolt is actually better than the Roam in the sense that it has a USB charging port, a USB-C charging port now instead of a micro USB. Which is great. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a more robust connection. It theoretically charges faster. Um, you know, it... The, the reasons for buying or spending the extra hundred dollars for that roam unless you just like you said unless you just need that bigger screen say if you like your near vision is not very good um it there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of justification in going for the roam now particularly since at that price point the roam honestly is not all that great i mean i i was definitely happier with garmin's uh options at that price point like the edge 830 that sort of thing um instead i mean well the edge 830 is still a little bit more expensive but um i i personally liked garmin's GPS computer is better than the Element Roam at that price point. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what I wonder about now, given that the reception to the Roam was actually kind of lukewarm, um, this makes me wonder if Wahoo is kind of opening the door to its for itself to kind of go even higher end. I mean, surely there's a new Roam on the way, right? Like that's usually would, how this works. You would hope because, I mean, the, the Roam... Like one one issue I've had with with Wahoo computers, and it's one that I also have with with this second generation Bolt. Um, I have found that as compared to Garmin computers, the Wahoo computers have a harder time like keeping track of satellites in really heavy tree cover, or if like in like in, if you're in a canyon or something. You know, in theory, the Wahoo and the Garmin uses the same networks of satellites, but the Garmin one just doesn't. I don't know if it's a different chip or antenna or whatever i'm not really sure um but for whatever reason the, the wahoo seems to have a harder time holding tr holding track of, uh, of its position um but that said it's still really easy to use and like it's very user-friendly the app the companion app is awesome um but yeah i mean if 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 wahoo were to go higher end than the roam what would that look like because it does seem like it it would be probably an even bigger screen hopefully a better quality screen uh, it'd be nice if that screen was bigger, but the case wasn't bigger. Like, you know, if they basically just reduced the size of the bezel. Um, but like, what else would you want to see in a higher end Wahoo unit? I mean, yeah, I think that's that's the big the big one is just the screen, right? You, you know, you get closer to like like the Hammerhead is is quite large. There's some other competitors out there. The, the some of the Garmin's are quite large, uh, and none of them really have a screen of the sort of you know the quality that you get on a phone, for example. The Hammerhead screen's really good. Hammerhead screen's very, very, very good. But neither Wahoo nor Garmin are anywhere near sort of an iPhone screen, right? And if you really think about it, like an iPhone's twice the price-ish uh, and like a th bajillion times the the power and better screen and all these other things. And so you you, you kind of do the, the comparison there. You're like, well, could they be putting a nicer screen, a better screen on these things? Yes, absolutely. There's, there's The technology is out there to improve that dramatically. And that's for a real sort of high-end feeling product, I think that's kind of what's You're missing. You're also it's not looking at photos on the screen of your Garmin. 
maybe you're not. <laughs> I'm scrolling Instagram. Just watch YouTube while I ride yeah. down the road. Yeah. I actually Zwift while I'm riding outside on my... <laughs> no. <laughs> you could do that. You could run Zwift on your phone paired to your power meter and Zwift outside. I mean, why not put your phone on your handlebar? I feel like I've seen a lot of ads pop up lately about this like clip Quad thingy. Lock. Quad lock. Yeah. yeah. Why don't, why don't I want that? They sponsored another of our podcasts. Thanks, Squadlock. Besides the fact that I would have an iPhone on my handlebar, <laughs> why do I want? <laughs> but that, that's another good good question because, like, as all of these dedicated GPS computers go up in price, I mean, let's say, you know, the the battery life has always been a, a big motivator in terms of getting a dedicated computer instead of running your phone on your handlebar, right? So, like this this Element Bolt has a claimed runtime of about fifteen hours. I mean, not that many people are going to be riding their bike for fifteen hours, I and mean, people do. But um, but if you don't need that kind of runtime. You know, what's, what's the argument against buying like an old used iPhone four or five or something like that and getting a quad lock or something? Because it was an old iPhone. The battery life is like an hour. (laughs) (laughs) But let's just, let's say you just pop in a new battery. You know, let's just say you do that. You can do that at home. You can buy a battery for like 50 bucks or whatever. But if, if you were to do that, then, you know, wouldn't you, you know, you'd be able to run Strava on your phone or whatever other, you know, ride with GPS app or whatever. Um, like even if you don't get a cell phone plan for it, like you could always just hook it up to Wi-Fi or wherever you are to stop at a cafe or something like that. You, you would have all this other capability in theory in a phone and it could potentially be cheaper and you'd have that big, beautiful screen, right? Yeah. People do this already. Like I, I know, I know a few people that do this. Um, for me, the, the older phones mean for one, they're not weather sealed. So that's not great as a cycling computer. Uh, but they are smaller. So for me, I, I tested the quad lock. I've tested a, a few other of these mounts recently. The big issue I had was putting a modern phone on the front. It's just quite distracting. It's a really large, bright screen kind of sitting, hovering above your wheel. And I didn't really get along with that. It took me quite a while to get used to it. And I still definitely didn't want it when I was like on gravel or off road. It was, it was kind of fine for on the road, but I, I still always found it distracting. Um, and yeah, I think that's that for me is is still the selling benefit of a dedicated cycling computer over using a phone. Um, but from a technology point of view, a phone smashes everything else. A modern iPhone, a modern Samsung smashes every other dedicated cycling computer in in technology, in capability, uh, in usability. I mean, yeah, it's cycling computers have been left in the dust in that regard. But- Speaking of speaking of that kind of screen being distracted, you know, weird. It's almost as if you could make the argument that all these newer cars that are coming out with like a bazillion screens, hmm. I wonder if that might actually be distracting to the actual act of, you know, like driving the car, maybe. Like I'm going off on another tangent here. Hmm. Yeah, but you don't I have wonder. to drive the car anymore. That's that's the whole goal of all the screens. <laughs> true, true. You right. Can just I mean, sit, so- sit in the driver's seat playing Mario Kart in your Tesla. Yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty, pretty soon the, the windshield is going to be a screen, right? You won't even be able to look outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to return to Wahoo real quick, I, 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 you know, I think in general, I really like their, their sort of user experience. You know, like you said, the app is fantastic. Things just kind of work, you know, like, you, you know, you get a new one, you scan the little QR code that pops up on the screen with your phone app. Everything just syncs. It's all very happy. I have had a couple times issues where either like there would be a firmware update or some sort of update and things would just stop working right like specifically the ability to just auto upload my rides 
Uh, and actually, I've got one of these one of these Wahoo Rival watches as well. And, and I've had this happen a couple times where most of the time I finish a ride, I hit stop, I hit end, it saves, it shows up on my Strava automatically. I don't have to do anything, right? But then totally randomly, it will just refuse. And I'll open the app and I'll be like, you know, you'll scroll down and it's like scanning workouts, didn't find anything. It's like something is going wrong there. And it's just not super consistent. And I think it often happens after some sort of like firmware update has, has gone through. So while, while I appreciate Wahoo's, like I said, their, their, their UX is fantastic. They, they have some of these issues. And for me, like the whole, as somebody who doesn't really care about most of the sort of like actual technology in these things, like I, I don't use them. I don't use them to their full capacity, right? I don't use most of the features that are in any of these computers. I really just want a computer that I hit start on and it has a screen that tells me how fast I'm going, maybe how many watts I'm doing, how long I've been riding. And when at the end of my ride, I hit stop and it goes into the internet and I don't have to mess with it. And when that breaks down, that that's super frustrating for me. And that to me, like th that's the reason I, I left Garmin to originally is because they kept bricking themselves and, and not working. And now I'm running into the same problem at Wahoo. And for me, that's like, that's the number one thing. Fix that. I never, ever, ever want my, my watch to just randomly stop talking to my phone. Right. That's super frustrating to me. Well, Wahoo is definitely in a little bit of dangerous water here because, you know, for the longest time, certainly for the first few years that they were around in the, in the, in like the GPS bike computer market, I mean, their, their claim to fame, the real draw was the fact that, you know, you kind of had this Apple versus PC sort of comparison where like, you know, the PC could potentially be more powerful, but you had to like really dig into everything a lot more. You had to like figure out how to do stuff. Whereas, you know, Wahoo just, you turned it on and it worked, right? Just like what you were saying, okay, like you didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to figure anything out. Like the, all this stuff happened behind the scenes and with very little, you know, minimal user interaction. But as things have gotten, you know, as the company has matured and as they've added more stuff, uh, it does seem like they are running into these, you know, firmware issues kind of a little bit more often than they did originally. Um, I mean, I had a I had a conversation with a Garmin software engineer quite a while ago, and they were saying how, you know, just, you know, they were pretty open about the fact that you know the software was just super super bloated as compared to what they used to be on like an old Edge like three hundred five or something like that. Like things were just so different. Um, so as certainly as Wahoo continues to add features and add functionality, you have to imagine that they will run into something similar. Like even if their even if their QC process is better or or whatever, I mean, just as you as you add more lines of code, you're going to introduce more potential for error. Um, so you know, we were just talking about you know what potential Garmin or what potential Wahoo might have for for doing like a higher end version. You know, there, I feel like there certainly is a market for a higher end Wahoo computer, but if Wahoo does that while, you know, without being able to maintain that sort of level of reliability that they're known for, then, you know, really at that point, things could really fall apart. I actually see a gap in the market for Wahoo to basically do like a, an Edge 500 with the auto upload stability of like an Apple iCloud, you know ios where it's just flawless upload but it just paired back design very very simple features uh and just you know that same app basically where it's just anyone can get it intuitively straight away get it running and it just has the most basic of of data i think that would do very well 
I don't remember what the company was, but I still kind of want one of those ones that was an analog like Speedo on it that showed showed your data, but that would still upload to Strava. The Fabian like, Cancellara thing. What yeah. was that called? The Amada. The Amada. Does that still exist? It's still around. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't want all of the gizmos and maps and beeps and lights and color screen. Like, I just want it to tell me how fast I'm going and how many watts I'm doing and then go to Strava. Yep. That's all. Yeah. Dave, kind of along the, along the lines of what you were just talking about, you know, I'm sure that Wahoo has, and Garmin for that matter, I'm sure they have data on what functions and features their computer users are actually using. And it'd be really interesting to see, like, you know, let's say you looked at what functions 95% of your users are using, and then you focus on those, completely ditch everything else. And let's say you bring out a model that is 200 bucks or 150 or $100 even. Yep. That just gets away with all the other stuff. And like you said, just has that sort of rock solid reliability. I mean, I guess that's sort of what the Edge 130 was when that was first introduced. And, you know, one of the reasons why I really liked that model from Garmin is because it did remind me so much of that older Edge 500 that honestly, a lot of people who are listening to the podcast right now are still using because it's been so rock solid. Like, like, you know, I've heard from so many people who are just deathly afraid to like update the software on their Edge 500 because they don't want to do anything to it. So why not just make a new Edge 500 the same way that they made the original 500? I, like I don't know. I like don't if know. it's so I mean, good, why not just make it to the exact same specs that it was originally? Like just, just, re- just re-release it. Like, you know, call yeah. it like an re-release Edge 500 it. Heritage Edition or something. <laughs> yeah, something. Make it look fancy. In a, in a bundle with a Nokia 5, 510. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I want to flip computer like put the use the same internals of the edge 500 same everything but put it in a new box so it looks better like not the well, little like, gray know, like and up, update the electronics you know like give, give it the updated satellite compatibility you know you know don't give it a touch screen but the core functions of it make it exactly how it was yeah like but like you know refresh it sort of but don't add anything to it basically correct yeah like why not do that uh, I don't know, because apparently more is more, right? Like everyone just wants to have more. I hate it. They've got all these software engineers employed. <laughs> Give <them> something to do. <laughs> well, we've created the perfect computer. We know we no longer need any of yeah. your services. <laughs> uh, I, I really like this idea, actually. I mean, maybe we should maybe we should see if we can get someone from Wahoo or Garmin on the show and see if we can kind of get their take on something like that, because that would be really cool. We, we actually, a good friend of ours is, is a Wahoo guy. Wahoo engineer. I'm sure there are people listening, screaming, saying there are computers on the market that have this pad back design, but for me, no, they're missing the, the UX that Wahoo has, has built. True. So True. That's the gap. Hmm. Interesting, Dave, because you're right. I mean, these, the Wahoo prices are creeping up and they are mm. leaving space at the bottom now. So someone out there is like the Sigma Sport or GPS computer is the edge 500. No one, <laughs> no one wants that. Give me that. Give me that cat eye with a wire. I want my yeah. cat eye with a wire. Back. Twirl it up against the, the cable. Oh, yeah. Avocet needs to come back. Avocet <laughs> needs to come back with all the colors and the little the spoke ring and everything. Uh, anyway. All right. Moving on to some not so new stuff. Well, it's sort of new stuff. Uh, so Ratio Technology is a company out of the UK that I've written about before. Um, they have already offered 12-speed upgrade kits for SRAM 11-speed mechanical double-tap road levers. So you can run them with uh, 12-speed Eagle mountain bike SRAM derailers. They now have another kit that allows you to upgrade to 12-speed if you have 10-speed SRAM double-tap road shifters. 
uh, it's a sli- it's a slightly different kit. Uh, there's like basically like two pieces that you have to replace now instead of just one. Um, but I love what this company is doing in terms of breathing new life into stuff. Uh, Dave, what exactly are we talking about here, and what sort of compatibility are we looking at? Uh, so for the 10 speed, it's uh, it's basically the same 12 speed uh, ratchet ring that they'd released previously, but now they've added a new cable spool, which uh, was actually, funnily enough, was one of the failure points of the the older SRAM shifters. Is if if people did have a broken shifter, often it was where the cable um, the cable end went into the shifter. So they've now offered they've they've basically built a a service part for for people with broken shifters at the same time as allowing you to upgrade it to an 11 or well up to up to a 12 speed shifter uh and then yeah the idea with uh with this there's another new kit so there's there's that that turns your 10 speed shifter into a 12 speed uh they've also released a uh i guess an axis road mechanical conversion so the idea is if you've currently got a one by 10 or one by 11 SRAM drivetrain, uh, you can now use their ratchet ring conversion and get yourself a 12 speed shifting system while reusing your existing clutch derailleur and shifters. I think with the 10 speed one, I don't, don't quite understand that. Like these shifters, like you're not replacing the weakest point on those. It was, where the shift lever itself pivoted, like those would always just snap and fall off, right? On the early gen, yeah. Um, and I feel like if you still have 10-speed stuff, like maybe it's time to to upgrade. Like 11-speed mechanical SRAM stuff, pretty cheap well, these days. I, I, I guess, but I guess one of the potential reasons, well, keep keep in mind that ratio, I mean, they're, they're 3D printing all this stuff, right? So it's not like they have to spend a ton of money on tooling to like injection mold plastic or like, you know, forge aluminum or steel or whatever, that sort of thing. Um, it could very well be that ratio is seeing an opportunity at the moment because, you know, no one can get anything. So like, let's say you have that 10 speed stuff. Yeah, but you still need say, to buy a 12 speed cassette. Where are you going to get that from? True. No, I mean, <laughs> but you, you can't get everything right now, right? Like, like certain things are sort of available and certain things are not like, I mean, I, I heard about, um, like a friend of a friend who who sold a pair of SRAM Force Axis shifters, just the shifters for fourteen hundred dollars, because you can't get them anywhere. It's just like, are you kidding me? But like, if, but if that's the sort of environment that we're in right now, and Ratio sees an opportunity to, you know, potentially serve these customers who can't get anything at the moment, then at that point it makes a little bit more sense. Like in in a normal time, it probably wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for them to. You know, to, to offer this kit. But if you can do that sort of thing without having to invest a whole, a whole ton of money in tooling, and even if you can serve like, you know, a hundred people, 200 people or something like that, like that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. I, I've still got a 10 speed tram shifter going. Um, I've got it set up with like, with the 11 speed, um, I guess, force one rear derailleur and a, like a 11 to 36 cassette. So it's, it's on a cyclocross bike and it's still ticking and it's kind of the the second generation of their shifters which didn't always break um and yeah i mean this this ratio kit is kind of cool i've got some on a bike too but it's a single speed (laughs) (laughs) so better question dave can you use one of these kits now one of these newer kits can you use one of those to uh convert a red force or rival 22 setup to a 2 by 12 so they they haven't specifically said they, I guess they ratio haven't suggested that that's the use application, but I don't see any reason why you couldn't. 
uh, I guess the bigger question is why you'd want to. Right. That seems like why would you want to to have to do all of that when 11 speed stuff is going to shift better and you don't need a different free hip body? Well, it, it, it'd be for the people who really want, you know, who, who really love SRAM double tap style shifting, but specifically want but a want proprietary drivetrain. Well, someone who wants a specific, a two by 12 mechanical drivetrain, which you can't, can't currently be. can't get from SRAM. Get me yellow. But um, what, 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 like I said, if you, if you are already kind of dedicated and married to the, the double tap design, like if that's what you really like, then you're not going to want to switch to Campy or, you know, like, and Shimano doesn't have 12 speed mechanical. So I feel like this like might be for me. I mean, I just don't understand. Like, what is that extra cog gaining use that like doing this whole conversion and everything one is more. beneficial besides being just one more. And we've just discussed how more is better on the garments. <laughs> but. but again, I mean, we, you know, we have, I feel like we have this, this discussion a lot where we're going to have to remind ourselves that, that, you know, a lot of these products are not necessarily directed at us or like, you know, or any one of, one of us in particular, but say if you are on a two by 11 setup and, you know, 11 speed cassettes, you know, you can go up to what, like an 1132 or something like that, basically with a, with a SRAM red 22 setup. Um, you know, you could theoretically, if you wanted to go with 12 speed, you can get more range now with 12 speed and keep your mechanical shifter actuation. And like that, that's a way that you could get more range if you needed it. Right. Yeah. I think I think there are people out there that'll that'll find um, that beneficial. I, I think it's a very very niche market, but but as you say, James, like it's it's not a hugely expensive kit. They're not necessarily going to have to carry deep stock of these as a company. It's kind of low risk for them beyond their their research and development into it. So kind of hey, why not? Choice. Yeah, is a good I mean, thing. I, I think like from their point of view, right? Like, why not do it? It's cheap. It's easy to make for different shifters. But to me, I don't understand the like, I mean, obviously I might not be their customer, but like, I don't understand the use of you buy this cheap part to make your shifter 12 speed, but then you also have them to buy all chain, of this new drivetrain and like chain rings, so on all so this forth. new yeah. bit that like, yeah, maybe you're like so me, it, maybe, maybe you're like me and you've got the, you've got a, you know, a red 22 set up, but your cassette and your chain and your chain rings are about to go, which mine will sometime at the end of the summer, probably. And you're like, well, if I'm going to buy all this stuff anyway, might as well make it myself. But if you're going to, like, let's say theoretically you do this where you have access. I won't. Cassette. Well, yeah, <laughs> you won't. Theoretically, you don't want to buy new access cranks as well. The SRAM doesn't make access compatible chain rings for your normal 110 BCD crank. And they're the brands no, but, do. but Rotor does. Rotor does. But there's still like, how much money are you spending on this? A bunch. So, so for me, uh, I, I put this in my in my in the article about it, but it's I think one use case, one example might be say you've got a new fancy road bike with with access ETAP with access um twelve speed, and then you've got an older gravel bike maybe which has the eleven speed mechanical. This in theory could let you bring all your parts together, so you can have you know the same wheel set between the two bikes or the same cassette between the two bikes, uh, and and basically only have to own one one kind of chain right so i think there is a use case and i think there will be people out there that that see benefit in having you know one type of chain one type of cassette in totally household. and this people is people love to tinker sure people love yeah. to tinker but again point being like there i don't think anyone's going to argue with you that this is a niche application there is not going to be a huge widespread market for these things ratio is not going to be printing these things in like the tens of thousands i just i just don't see it but 
I am pretty happy that this exists and that they are at least addressing that market because there have been people who have been clamoring for that sort of thing because they do love their SRAM mechanical stuff and maybe want to upgrade and get a new setup, but they can't because SRAM hasn't been doing it. Well, and this is the cool thing about 3D printing, right? Is that it, it, the, it no longer costs, you know, <laughs> working up a, a half a factory to put this stuff together and you have to order 50,000 of them, right? They can literally make nine if they want to. <laughs> I mean, they're probably totally made to order to a degree. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're going to see more and more things like this as 3D printing continu continues to progress and as we can sort of quickly and easily print more and more substances and, and shapes and things I mean, like it's that. It's going to be so. like 90s mountain bike over all over. It's like someone gets a CNC machine and starts making hubs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, you know, Brian Park, the editorial director at, uh, at our sister site, Pink Bike, I mean, he's been making, uh, he's been 3D printing uh, I guess basically like sort of like carbon reinforced plastic flat pedal bodies for himself that he's been riding and has been, you know, successfully running too. And like you know, he uses pin pin hardware from, you know, from one up or something, I believe he's using an existing axle setup. Um, he's just printing the bodies, but he's literally doing this in his garage. Like he's kind of like throwing it together on his computer, pushing the button and it, it prints it up and it's been working great. So like it's it like this sort of thing. It really is letting people just make stuff at home that is legit. Um, cool. So yeah, you know, ratio is kind of making a business out of it. And you know, I guess we'll see where this goes from here. But again, I don't see that they're going to sell a whole ton of them. But you know, for those fifty hundred people, however many that there are out there who really have been dying to see something like this, now they have it, and I think it's cool. Uh, tangent. <laughs> no. There's a Pinarello sitting in the shop right now. The F10 disc. They spelled disc wrong. Yeah, that's Italian. Is it, did they spell it with a K? There's got a K in it. Yeah. It, it's Italian. I just it's never Italian. I just never noticed that before. And now this was, was I'm just a little bit stunned. Yeah. Can't believe that's the first time you've seen that. <laughs> I, I mean I've probably read the name of that bike many times. I just, just never even I don't know. I was sitting here with my copy editing hat on. I'm like, well, you got a problem over there, Mr. Pinarello. <laughs> <laughs> this is why this is why they try to push everyone on the rim brakes. This is why Ineos rides rim brakes. It's because they're embarrassed by the name of their uh, alternative <laughs> net like we Spelled it wrong once. Now we have to yeah. stick with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right. All right. Tangent over. <laughs> tangent over. Moving on. The last segment of the show, and arguably the best one, we're going to finish up with Ask a Mechanic. And I've got a whole list of questions here. And seeing as how this show is somehow running a little bit long, despite the fact that I didn't have a whole lot in my show notes here, uh, we'll see how many of these we get through. That's my um, fault. That's my fault entirely. <laughs> all right. The, our first Ask a Mechanic question is arguably the most important Ask a Mechanic question that we've had ever. Ever. Because, because, it, because it comes from Sucking Tips founder, Wade Wallace. Oh. Uh-oh. Wait, Wade listens to this podcast? So it could be trouble. a bad question, but it's from an important person. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, a very, it's a very legitimate question. And as, I, as far as I remember, it's not something that we've brought up before. Uh, so Wade would like to know... You know, he's told that, you know, he should replace his tubeless sealant every few months, but he usually has many types of sealants around in his kit. He can't remember which one he put into which bike. So he wants to know, can he put any sealant in as a top up or will that completely ruin whatever he has in there? And as a corollary to that, uh, he also was wondering if sealants have an expiration date because there's nothing listed on his bottles that are like, you know, some of them are 10 years old. Not really sure why Wade still has ten year old sealant, but um, but he's not. He said he's not willing to test them either. So what do we think about all this? I mean, I would say first, like if your bottle of sealant is ten years old, 
it's like 20 bucks throw it away and buy some new stuff like even if there's not an actual expiration date on there i i don't know if there's a, an official expiration but i have definitely noticed that it seems to not work after yeah. a while uh and i would say that after a while it's probably defined as like a year or two sitting in a bottle doing nothing i mean maybe if it's in like a cool dry place in a basement it sealed up obviously it's going to be fine but it stops working Wait, eventually so um officially stands no tube says their sealant doesn't have an expiration date but they do assume that the bottle sealed and and in a dry you know dark place so uh i would say if the the particles are no longer floating around in the sealant then that's probably a sign that it's ready to go that's funny that they tires. they in particular have said there's not an expression date a previous shop i worked at there was a pretty big high volume shop in the service department we would go through tons of sealant and it's all sold in small bottles and we like called stands we're like can we just buy like a five gallon bucket of this at a time and they said no because it will go bad because we're assuming that you won't use it all very quickly so their their reasoning was that it would go bad because it would just sit there. That would be unsealed, right? So that, that kind of backs up but what we're saying, which is if you if yeah. you if yeah. you open well, the you bottle, put like a a nozzle or something on it. There yeah. there are ways there are ways around that. There are definitely yeah. ways around that. I mean, there yeah. there are definitely container technologies that are out there that let you extract a certain amount of liquid from a larger container without introducing air, and that that's totally. where technology absolutely exists. I mean, whether or not Stans wants to invest in something like that for a shop is another question entirely. But anyway, to, to not get too deep into the chemistry of it, but I believe the ammonia in the stands is their preservative, and I believe there's that burns off pretty quickly once it's exposed to air. So, well, Stan Stan says that their 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 current formulas are ammonia free. Oh, okay, there you go. Yeah. So, but anyway, back to Wade's first primary question: oh, yeah. Is it okay Mixing. to mix and match different sealants? I mean, I'm I go a, by I'm, taste, and then that way you know what you <laughs> what you got in there. And, yeah. <laughs> Get the right color mixture. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I would say like most most customer bikes I deal with, they're like putting new tires on and we're starting fresh with the sealant. But on my personal bikes, I have definitely mixed sealant and not ever had a problem. Yeah. I mean, they're all fundamentally basically based. the same thing. It's yeah. just latex in solution. Some are orange, some are around. white. They, yeah. Some are different colors. Some are blue, some are whatever. But fundamentally, the thing actually doing the plugging is just latex. And so assuming that there are no other chemicals in those that are going to interact badly. Uh, I have heard before, was it orange seal and, and something? When they mix together, it would just the latex would just ball up, basically. Like it would pull the latex out of solution. Uh, so I think that that is possible. But I, like I personally have done orange seal and stands in numerous tires going back and forth. And it's been totally fine. Same thing with the, bl the blue Bond Trigger stuff. Yeah, it's not like it's going to explode yeah. in a chemical right, reaction. It's not like you're mixing bleach and ammonia here. Yeah, yeah, which is not recommended. Don't do but, that science experiment at home. Yeah. Person personally, I would say for best results, you probably try avoid mixing unless you're sure that the, the sealants are similar in their chemical characteristics. Yeah. Um, but I would I would be nervous to put like you know something like the new veggie latex. What's what's that called? The from Afido Mariposa. What's the Ve then new? Yeah, veggie latex. Yeah, I'd be nervous to put something like that with Stan just because I think those two are such different sealants that I'd worry that the actual sealing particles would probably figure out a way to combine and create balls that you don't want rolling in your tires. To me, I don't quite see why anyone uses anything other than Stan's and Orange Seal, but that's just me. 
I've had exceptionally poor luck with some of the other substitutes, yeah. I will say. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of the stuff that just shows up with a set of wheels or a set of tires for review. Uh, I don't know. Should we name and shame? Should we name? Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name and shame two big brands equally, uh, which is that uh, some of the original Specialized stuff and the original Bontrager stuff, and I haven't used this in probably a year or two, was garbage <laughs> it was terrible and i just went back to stance and both have updated theirs yeah yeah i think i think so the late i've actually used the um specialized has a high pressure sealant that they were shipping their their tubeless road tires with uh that stuff actually that's, that's more like the stands race day right yeah just like that bigger stuff, chunks i found that that stuff worked really well um did a really good job of sealing up those really really thin turbo uh, tubeless tires that get flats like every 50 feet so you need a lot of sealant in there but the rapid airs the, yeah the rapid airs those are not compatible about. on all specialized latest wheels. <laughs> <laughs> those tires are basically made of paper uh so you better have sealant in but the good news is the sealant worked quite well uh but yeah some of the original like the blue bond tracker stuff eh, not so much um again i think it's been upgraded updated since then because you should be able to figure out the solution here it's not particularly complicated chemistry i don't think uh but some of the original yeah. stuff, not so good. Most of the latex stuff that I've used, though, certainly recently has all been pretty good. Like, it, like, none of, like some of them are definitely better than others. I mean, I think I personally seem to have better luck with Orange Seal than uh, than a lot of the other stuff. And and the current generation stand stuff is still pretty good. Um, but like I've used the like the Conti Revo sealant, and that's been pretty good. And the latest generation specialized stuff has been okay. The Bontrager stuff, like that blue stuff that you were talking about, Keely, that's been okay. Um, so it seems like most of the latex based stuff now has been pretty good, uh, which which is which is good to know. But anyway, back to Wade's question, uh, Wade, if you are wondering about mixing and matching sealants. And if some of your sealant is pretty old, I say you start fresh, personally. With an inner tube. <laughs> I feel like Wade <laughs> potentially has contacts within the industry to get new I, sealant I, I, tires I as well. <laughs> I dare say we can probably help Wade get some sealant. So, Wade, Wade, we will figure something out for you. All right, moving on, moving on. All right, uh, this question comes from Vela Club member Eric Wang, and I did confirm that he, he pronounces his name Wang and not Huang, because the, the, there's multiple pronunciations and spellings here. Um, anyway, he said he has a minor gripe because he has uh, Supreme CX Ray spokes laced two cross on his wheels, and they ping lightly while riding unless he oils the crosses from time to time. Uh, he said the spokes are properly tensioned, wheels, the wheel runs and stays true. It's happened to him on both carbon and aluminum wheels, but almost never has, he almost never has this issue with standard round spokes. So the, what is the, the deal here? Ones? What should he do? No, they're, they're black ones. I'm assuming I, this is just like, for black. whatever reason, the coating that they put on black spokes, they're like the slight bit of friction. Like they're always, grippier. Yeah. They just kind of do this. I had a pair of Reval wheels that did this. Yeah, yeah, just a bit of a bit of lube on the on the spots solved it, but it, it just seems to be yeah, it's, kind of it's, unavoidable. And as long as everything's spokes. tensioned how it should be, yeah, it's it's just like I've very 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 rarely ever see this with silver spokes, um, just because it doesn't have that coating on it. But the black spokes, for whatever reason, the coating does do this, which is why my bikes all have silver spokes. <laughs> I mean, is there anything that he can do to keep that pinging at bay for longer than just, now he said he's, he's using Phil's tenacious oil. Um, I actually wonder if there's a different oil he can use that might last longer as far as I mean, keeping I've, that thing quiet. On personal bikes that didn't have silver spokes, I've used more of like a wax loop and that seemed to last longer and not attract a bunch of dirt and stuff. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I I wrote an article about this on April first. Um, wasn't wasn't a joke, but drivetrain waxing. So you just need a large vat of of wax. I'd consider just dipping the wheel, <laughs> disc rotor and all. <laughs> oh my. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder. Like, what about what about tying? Like solder and tie would. I know that's not really done with bladed spokes, but could it? I, I mean, that would definitely fix the problem. What's what is that? What is that surface treatment? Can you just rub it off right on the inside there? No, it's it. You can't rub it off. It doesn't really seem. It's some sort of. It, it, it seems almost like it's analogous to anodizing. Like it's it's in the metal. Yeah. Um, so it's not something that you can rub off very easily at all. And even if you could, you'd probably have to like sand off the outer layer or something like that, which wouldn't be easy to do anyway because it's at the cross. Right. Yeah, you'd have to take the wheel apart. So I, yeah. I mean, it sounds like you, Eric. It sounds like you might want to try a different lube, uh, which might work, might last a little bit longer. Um, and then otherwise, we're not really sure what to recommend for you here. But I, I, I would definitely try a different lube. But that feels tenacious oil, as much as it's like thick and gooey, and like more or less tends to stay where it's put. Uh, it's also pretty old tech, and I wonder if something newer might be a good idea. So if you have some different chain lube or something at home, just try something else and just see if something lasts longer. I mean, I would say too, like very much double check that the tension is where it should be. And then it's nice and even with like a proper good tensiometer, not like a cheap and accurate one, like a, yeah, like a DT or real, uh, not real fanatic one. Like, yep. yeah, something, yep. something high quality um, that actually measures tension accurately. Yeah. And then, and then barring that, if none of that stuff works, then, you know, maybe you would consider tying and soldering. Like I said, I've certainly done that before and I, you know, those wheels have always stayed quiet. Um, and you know, I, I dare say, you know, hopefully you could find a reputable wheel builder in the area that could do that for you if it continues to be a problem, because that certainly would quiet it down completely forever. Yeah. I mean, it's too, it's like how annoying it is to you and on how much of the ride, like in my experience, it only usually happens when you're like slogging up some steep climb at two miles an hour. Like just riding along, you don't ever hear it. Right. But I mean, if he's even bringing it up, it's obviously must be annoying enough. So yeah, if he's adding lube, he's at a point where he wants to get it done. Get it fixed. Yeah. yeah. All right. Moving on. Uh, we have another sealant question here from Velo Club member Jeremy Hopwood. Is it worth running sealant proactively in tubulars or even tubes in any circumstances? And if so, what are the cons of doing so? Dave, you want to answer that? It looks like... Uh, I, I wrote an article about this, which was, um, what's the Israel, Israel cycling? What's the protein, Kaylee? What do they call themselves? Dash, at the Israel, startup Israel dash startup. nation. Yes. <laughs> Israel yeah. start dash up That's, nation. Yeah. Uh, I wrote an yeah. article about them using sealants in all of their tubulars, uh, and they're doing it at every race in every wheel. Uh, and they don't believe that there is a downside. They've done, um, rolling resistance testing and it's, it's very negligible. The only downside is weight. Uh, and ongoing maintenance. They're on Maxis. Are they on tubulars that have an actual inner tube, or are they more like the Tufo Donnelly tubeless they're, tubular? They're a little vague about that. I think there's a few different variants yeah. going around. Because I'd say, like, my biggest the issue I've seen because people around here do this for cyclocross tubulars because there's a lot of thorns and stuff. And the problem is, like, let's say you get a thorn um, in and it goes through the through the casing and then into the inner tube and the sealant seals it but then you get that friction between the tire like the casing and the inner tube and that it just keeps losing air because unless you like fully pull the thorn out and find it and really get it properly sealed there you just keep losing air because that the thorn keeps wiggling um this is an interesting question from velo club member brian grober uh would like to know uh it sounds like he has a pioneer parameter 
that the power meter is apparently no longer working at all. Uh, he would like to know is you know he would like to know if you can take one of those Pioneer power meter cranks, remove the power meter bits, and just run it as a standard crank set. Is that okay to do? I mean, I would think that if it's similar to the stages, and I've seen their process, basically like where that the power meter bit adheres to the crank arm, they basically like laser etch all of the the actual anodizing finish off. So then if you just ripped the power meter bits off, then you would have raw aluminum exposed to elements, which would not be great. Yeah. I would I would wonder what, like, uh, assuming it's a newer generation Pioneer, it's what, like 70 grams or something like that? Why not just leave it on there? But I wonder if it's more a visual thing for him, because, like, mm. you know, the, the, the pods on the back of the crank arm are really not a big deal, but it, there's also, yeah. like, the little pod that's kind of attached to the spider. Yeah. Um, so that that is the bit that if... If I were thinking of this more from an aesthetic point of view, I guess that's what I would be more concerned with. And maybe that's what he wants to ditch. But that part you could probably just tear off there, probably. Although Yeah, the bit that because that like bolts between the chain ring bolts kind of. Like you could yeah, probably just so. get rid of that. Yeah. I think the the main point is that that power meter has has been added to the crank without changing the structural integrity of the crank, right? It's just it's an addition to the crank. It's not like yeah, in it place of something arm. else. So I think, yeah, if you could remove it, you'd be fine. But then, as Zach said, you'd be potentially exposing the raw metal to the world. Just knock it off with a hammer. Yeah. I mean, realistically, you could probably sell these cranks on eBay or something for a decent amount and just buy a new crank set that doesn't have that. Oh, dear God, if you could actually get one. Although some, some, although someone else would probably buy your crank, Jorge, with the non-functional power meter on it just because they don't have a crank at all. Exactly. Um, for sale, right. non-functional power meter from a company that no longer, no longer I mean, exists. You roll up to the coffee shop, it looks like you have a power meter. Just oh putting my, the vibes out. Oh my. All right, let, let's wrap this up here. Last couple of ones here. Simon Boot would like to know, he's got a question about fasteners. How do you know when to use grease, thread lock, or nothing at all? Just feel it in your heart. <laughs> yeah, do what feels never, right. Never nothing at all. Yeah, I was, yeah, if it's threaded, always something, and then it just kind of depends on the application. Yeah, because um, another thing that he didn't mention is uh, is is uh, is he asking uh, about anti- a specific antithesis. specific area? No, nope, he's not asking about a specific area, but he's trying to figure out just like, with all the various fasteners on a bike, how do you know when to use grease or thread lock or anti seize? I mean, if it's titanium, use anti seize, and then usually if it's something that needs thread locker, the bolt will already have it on it. Like let's say if it's a brake caliper bolt, like and you take that out, you'll see remnants of old thread locker. So maybe put some new thread locker on there. And things that don't come with it, like the mounting bolt for a derailleur, I mean, not on SRAM because that has a thread locker, but like a Shimano one, it uses just use grease or something on there. Uh, I think when in doubt, use thread locker is probably the safe rule, and otherwise use uh, grease. And then, as Zach said, if it's titanium, anti seize is a safe bet, but thread locker is also functions. All right, last question then comes from Jorge Miguel da Silva Salguero get that name right i think he's a member of team tube inside and was and is wondering about what the best performance to quality ratio would be for a tube butyl latex continental supersonic or tubolito depends what you're writing definitely no latex if carbon clinchers and also brakes. and also no tubolito with carbon clinchers yeah uh, although i did ride one down the hill down flag because I, I use tubolitos as a as a as my backup tube because they're so small and I need them very rarely. And I had my first flat in about 18 months of the day and swapped them inside the road and rode down the hill. Less and didn't, than three didn't minutes die. because tube inside. Yep. Team tube inside was back on the road in less than three minutes. 
Tribulator should be fine with rim brakes. It's just you can't use the S, the the super light one. That's uh, that's that's not heat tolerant. Gotcha. The ones I had said do not run with carbon clinchers. Yeah, that'd be super, <laughs> that would be the super light one. And I was like, okay, I okay, but I did anyway, and I did die. That said, maybe don't do that. Uh, so. I, so I would vote if you're running disc brakes, I would say to go with latex. Yeah. Uh, if you're running rim brakes, I would say to go with the Conti Supersonic Super Light Butyl, personally. Yeah. That's probably the way I would go. Yep. I would agree with that. Dave, any thoughts? Sure. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Tubeless. Right. Well, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm getting, becoming more and more competitive to tubeless road as, as the days go. So, oh my, so oh my. Yeah. Last, we're call, we'll make this the last question here. It comes from Daniel Daza. Uh, he also said that its proper pronunciation is apparently Daza. Daniel would like to know if Simple Green is okay to use as a degreaser. I mean, I don't usually use it. I feel like I've seen it mess with the anodized, anodized finish on Anodizing. some parts. Yep. But uh, you can use, you can really dilute it down, or I think there's an aircraft-specific version um, that doesn't do that. Regular simple green, I can tell you, is not recommended by at least SRAM because it, it causes um, embrittlement stress, of the, the steel. Stress corrosion cracking. Yep. Uh, and it's definitely not recommended by Chris King because it does fade anodization. I feel like if there's any sort of question mark on it, use something else. Yeah, I, I, I personally use the simple green aerospace. They call it simple green extreme because uh, that, is, that is specifically formulated for like kind of like aircraft applications that do have a lot of you know, kind of like, you know, composites and anodized surfaces and, you know, certainly a lot of aluminum. And that stuff is, is totally safe to use for that. Um, I just, I just dilute it down to the recommended level. Um, and I, that's what I use in my ultrasonic cleaner. It works great. It has zero effect as far as I can tell on anodizing stuff. And I've had parts that have been sitting there for, you know, half an hour, an hour or something like that. Um, so I would not use straight simple green, but simple green aerospace is good to use. And it's not very expensive either. Unless you're in Australia, in which case it's like a hundred dollars a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just use like a pretty generic uh, citrus degreaser. It's like ten dollars for a gallon. Works great. Doesn't ruin any parts. Like, Good to go. Yeah. If there's a question mark around it, don't use it. Hmm. Okay. On that note. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. If you have not subscribed already, please do so on whatever application you use to get your podcasts. If you happen to be listening to this on iTunes, please consider leaving us a comment or review. If you are getting to this podcast from the Cycling Tips page, uh, please consider leaving a comment there. Uh, if you, let us know if you have any questions, uh, and you can always get a hold of us on social media. We're all pretty easy to find. Uh, last but not least, if you are not already a Vela Club member, please consider doing so. It doesn't cost very much. Uh, you know, the, the usual sort of cup of coffee a month sort of thing, or two cups of coffee a month. Uh, and that is what really helps us a lot to put this show together and bring it to you every week. So on that note, we'll say goodbye. Until next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.